The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. What are the most successful change leaders of today doing to deliver great results? Welcome to Inside Transformational Leadership with your host, Kate Ebner. Our program is produced by the Institute for Transformational Leadership at Georgetown University. We'll explore the inner game of transformational leadership, sharing insights from renowned leaders and faculty from our world-class leadership and coaching programs. Now, from Georgetown University, here is Kate Ebner. Good morning. This is Cheryl Phillips hosting for Kate today. I'm a faculty member for Georgetown's Leadership Coaching Program, and I co-direct the Institute's Program on Transformational Leadership. I'm so pleased today to be able to welcome back Bridget Schulte to our show. Uh, Bridget, it's been exactly one year since you were on our show the last time, so I'm, I'm very excited to hear what you've been up to. Um, just let me tell you a little bit about Bridget. She is the author of the New York Times bestselling book on time pressure, Overwhelmed, Work, Love, and Play When No One Has the Time. She was an award-winning journalist for the Washington Post, and now she serves as the founding director of the Good Life Initiative at a nonpartisan think tank here in Washington called New America. She also directs the Better Life Lab. Aren't those exciting um, and amazing-sounding efforts? We look forward to hearing more about it. She's been speaking all over the world about the causes and consequences of our unsustainable and always-on culture and really working to reimagine how we might do both work and leisure. Uh, She lives here in Alexandria, Virginia, with her husband, Tom Bowman, who's a reporter for NPR, and their two children. Welcome back, Bridget. We're so happy to have you. Thank you so much. It's great to be back. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, So, I can't think of any better place to start than (laughs) sort of hear what you've been up to in this last year, and uh, really, where where are you now, and uh, what's this work you're doing at New America all about? Sure, sure. Um, well, as you know, when I spoke with you a year ago, the paperback of the book had just come out, and, um, you know, most paperbacks, I guess it, this is my first book, so I don't really, I have nothing to compare it to, uh, but sometimes they come out without much fanfare, and it was, it was great and exhausting, but there, I was out on another book tour, and uh, people were just, you know, interested in talking and sharing and sharing their stories. There's so much pain and frustration out there, and people are really looking for hope and for answers, uh, you know, n- not sort of the platitudes that are going to make them feel better, and, you know, but they really want real answers uh, to how, how to make their lives feel better, how to make time feel better. So many people, it doesn't really matter. I heard from, you know, people with resources and without resources and with kids and without kids and, um, you know, caring for elderly parents and uh, and millennials just trying to figure out how to care for themselves. Uh, And a lot of people are just 
really hungry for trying to figure out, is there a better way? Is anybody doing it better? And how can we learn how to do it better? Um, at the same time, uh, after the book, had, uh, the, the book had come out, the hardback and the paperback, I went back to work at the Washington Post and was writing about these issues and really trying to surface those stories where things were changing, really kind of, if you will, making a beat out of it. I called it the good life beat. And mm-hmm. uh, it was really interesting. Um, I ran um, a really interesting uh, kind of digital project as well. We called it Time Hacker. Um, and that was, you know, uh, in the book, I write a lot about change and how what we really need when we move forward and, and think about how can things be better, really looking at the structural, the systemic, kind of the bigger picture that we all fit into. But then everybody also needs to learn their own kind of personal mastery skills. Uh, how can we you know, kind of change or bloom where we are, right where we are, and uh, how can that change then add to the, the bigger change, the, the kind of the bigger systemic change. And so this was sort of an effort to kind of help at that, that personal mastery level. And so we had people write in with a goal they really wanted to make time for, and we asked them to tell us why it was important and what was getting in the way. And then uh, I matched each person up. I had a wonderful group of coaches and uh, productivity experts and uh, career counselors and uh, people who were really interested in the project, trying to see if they could help people. And we turned it into a, we called it the 21-Day Time Hacker Project. I love that. You know, with the idea, the idea that there's no magic with 21 days, you know, um, I think that that's sort of a misnomer, that it, you can change a habit in three weeks. But we do know that you can at least get a start. You know, you can at least begin to to um, shift something. And so, well, and ident- identifying it is them, the first thing. Yeah, we're, exactly. We followed them over three weeks, and then uh, I wrote a piece about kind of where they were and what they'd learned. And I have to tell you, the most interesting thing was the most surprising thing out of running that whole series, and that was that in every single instance, it really didn't matter what the person's goal was, and everybody felt too busy for what, whatever it was they wanted to make time for. But in every instance, the biggest change that people made, needed to make, and they did make, was right between their own ears. It was all a matter of shifting their mindset, which was fascinating, that so many people felt that they didn't deserve time for what this particular thing was. There was a woman caring for her elderly mother who didn't feel like she deserved uh, time to go hiking. That was her hobby, and she felt guilty about it. And she needed to kind of make peace with the fact that she would be a better caregiver, which was obviously very important to her, if she also took care of herself. And taking care of herself also meant kind of listening to what made her soul sing, if you will. Uh, you know, how, would, how could she refresh her own soul? So some of these were, they were really interesting. So I ran the Time Hacker series in the past year. Um, I would do a weekly Good Life conversation with really interesting people who are doing the research, asking the questions. Um, and all of this was an effort to kind of um, keep these issues, keep these big questions, keep these thoughts, if you will, um, uppermost in our minds. And, um, and then in the fall, I had an opportunity to rejoin New America uh, New America is, is just a full place. It's a, a nonpartisan, centrist, nonprofit think tank here in Washington that's really unlike any other. Uh, it's where I had my fellowship 
when I was working on the book. And what I love about it is it's not affiliated with any party or any ideology. It's really looking for big ideas that can really solve or, you know, kind of solve the big problems of the day, um, kind of fresh thinking, new voices. And I was very, very fortunate, very grateful to have a fellowship there while I was writing the book and got a lot of support and really loved the, the people there and the questions they were asking. And so I had an opportunity to come back. Uh, Anne-Marie Slaughter, who is just uh, an amazing, amazing person, who's just written her own book uh, that came out this fall that I'd highly recommend called Unfinished Business, Men, Women, Work, Family. Um, she's the president and CEO of New America. And so um, Liza Mundy is another colleague, and she's also um, as part of the, the program that I'm part of. Um, you know, and she's written wonderful books about gender equity and women and women's roles. So to be at uh, this wonderful uh, foundation, this, you know, think tank, if you will, with some of the you know, leading thinkers and speakers and writers on the, the very issues that I've become so passionate about, I just can't tell you how exciting that is. It's just it's, been it's really, really thrilling. And so um, I'm now the director uh, at this point of our work life and our gender equity program that we've just renamed the Better Life Lab. And the whole idea behind that, and I'm happy to talk with you about it a little bit more, but the whole idea is we really want to uh, keep pushing the way we think about work-life issues. People tend to think, you know, the, the middle-class suburban woman with the business suit in the grocery store, you know, and that's such an outdated image that what we really want to do is show how the questions about how we work and live and fit our work and life together, they really apply to everybody. And they're really questions that we all have. How can we all do that better? Um, you know, again, regardless of whether you're a man or a woman or you're young or you're old or whether you have caregiving responsibilities or you have resources or education, everybody wants to figure out how to live their best lives at work and at home. And yeah, so we have how. three main areas we focus on, and uh, we've got all sorts of really great projects and events, and it's just a really exciting place to be. Yeah, and I, I was uh, taking a look at it, you know, in preparation for our interview. And so for those who are listening, just to jot down, it's called the Better Life Lab. It's part of uh, New America. So if you look, if you Google either of those things, it will pop right up. And there's so many interesting, I would almost call them op-eds. I know that's maybe their essays or something, but so many interesting topics. Uh, on your website already and speaking speaker events, uh, books and resources. It's really quite interesting what you're creating. I, it occurs to me that you guys are headed for um, a Nobel Peace Prize here <laughs> in the next few years if you can tackle and solve this issue, right? So is there any difference, um, Bridget, between the Better Life Lab and the Good Life Initiative? Are they one and the same? Is there any distinction there that would be useful for people to know? Sure. Um, so the Good Life Initiative is, um, you know, it's part of the Better Life Lab. The Better Life Lab has that bigger, um, kind of the bigger, broader area and the three areas that we're really looking at as a whole lab. And we like the word lab because nobody's figured this out. And so it's all about learning from exper experimenting and, um, you know, seeing what works and learning from failure. So just like you're saying, you know, I don't think I, I don't need to win the Nobel Peace Prize. I just want everybody to live a better life. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's reward enough. 
But um, you know, we really focus on three main areas as an entire lab, and that is um, fueling the evolution of work and what we mean by what it, what it means to, to do good work. Right now, that definition is long hours and FaceTime presence. Uh, whether that's, you know, and it's not necessarily tied to performance. And a lot of times that, that long hours and presence is a lot of busy work, kind of complicated returning emails and not necessarily high-value um, concentrated work. Uh, uh, so we're really looking at the mechanics of how we work itself and future of work with, you know, the trend toward the gig economy and uh, what kind of promises and perils are there. So that's one main area we look at. The second area is really reimagining gender to include both the advancement of women, which is critical, and women have been so stalled for so long, but that you can't look at that without also looking at the evolution and the role of men, that, mm-hmm. that really we have a much broader view of what that means, um, you know, for having true equity. And, you know, there's a social justice element there as well that's also regardless of your sexual orientation. You know, uh, our mission statement is real choices, real parity, all people. And, uh, and I think that that's, you know, we want to really encompass that we're talking about the better life for everybody, not just a few. Um, and then the last piece, the third bucket that, you, that we really focus on is rewiring social policy so that it really meets the needs of diverse 21st century families. Because right now, our, uh, our laws, our policies, a lot of the, our cultural attitudes, our, our workplace structures, they're really all still very much set up to support a 1950s breadwinner homemaker family. And, you know, there are very few families that are like that left anymore. Um, most, the majority of children are being raised by dual income parents, um, followed by single parents, and then followed by the traditional breadwinner homemaker families. And I think what people don't really understand or don't realize is that, you know, while you want to give people choice, uh, the people who, who are living in that kind of more traditional, um, uh, you know, um, kind of uh, family, they're either, they tend to be people with a lot of resources, and they also tend to be bosses, you know, so a lot yes. of bosses and people in power tend to have an at-home uh, spouse uh, or partner uh, taking care of everything at home, which studies show has made it very difficult for them to understand uh, a lot of the, the struggles and the overwhelm that many of their uh, the people who work for them feel. Uh, but the other people who tend to work in, who live in those uh, breadwinner homemaker families tend to be very poor, um, uh, more, uh, tend to be more newly arrived immigrants. Um, and they also need a lot of support. So, uh, so part of what we're trying to do is really, uh, I wrote an essay not long ago called Get Real. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, our policies also tend to support uh, they tend to be associated with poverty, and yet there are pain points, and there's need for support all up and down the socioeconomic ladder. So, so that's what the Better Life Lab focuses on, and the Good Life Initiative is really looking primarily at the intersection of uh, work culture, health, and gender, and really looking, kind of drilling down um, in, into some of those work questions um, and, and effective work, really focusing on how can you move from a, a very toxic work culture in many places to one that is um, more flexible, um, much more equitable, but also more effective. Yes. So, so I, I'd love for us to dive in a little bit to the gender piece before we before we head to break in a few minutes. So, 
So you wrote an essay called Let's Get Real, and I think it, if it, for those of you listening, please read it. It's pretty amazing just in and of itself. It captures a lot of these points. And one of my big takeaways in, in reading it was the thinking, you know, I'd like to hear why you wrote it and how your thinking has evolved from this being sort of just a women's issue and, and this thing being the time starvation that we're in, right, and more of an all-of-us issue. Uh, you know, what, what, how has your thinking evolved on that? Well, you know, to be perfectly honest, um, you know, I would say that my thinking has, um, you know, if you, if you read the book, I have a section on men. Um, um, you know, I think that my thinking all along has been really broad. Uh, I came to the understanding very early on um, that you needed, uh, you you know, when you're talking about gender equity, to not just talk about women, but also about men and how how both men and women's roles are changing. So I would say that that's very true to the book. Um, I, I, yeah, I think that might have gotten lost maybe in some of the initial uh, conversations, but mm-hmm. you know, there was lots of inter- lots of um, uh, examples in the book about men uh, living and working differently. Um, lots of really great research about how men are are more penalized at work when they try to work flexibly uh, because they're violating the kind of distant male breadwinner gender norms. So, uh, if anything, I would say that this work is deepening an already, um, a, a, you know, kind of a, a thinking that had already uh, was already pretty well uh, evolved, thinking about it in a very broad, holistic fashion. Great, great. So we're gonna we're gonna go to break, and when we return. Uh, I would love to dive into the idea of um, kind of the, the evolution of work and productivity and how, we, how, how you're thinking about productivity and what the science is saying about where our sweet spots are. And then we'll maybe move on to thinking about a little bit about policy uh, and what we are doing and what we need to be doing differently out there in the world. Um, I'm so pleased to have as my guest today Bridget Schulte, and we'll be back in just a moment. Founded in 2012, the Institute for Transformational Leadership, ITL, is an international center for inquiry, experiential education, and research about leadership in the 21st century. Our mission is to develop worldwide communities of transformational leaders and leadership coaches who are dedicated to engaging and providing the leadership needed for a more sustainable and compassionate future. We currently offer two cohort-based certificate programs, the ICF Accredited Certificate in Leadership Coaching and the Executive Certificate in Transformational Leadership. We also offer a range of ICF-certified Advanced Coach Education Master Courses for experienced leadership coaches. For more information about our programs and how to apply, visit scs.georgetown.edu forward slash ITL. Email itlprograms at georgetown.edu or call 202-687-7000. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. 
Each week on CTN, CIO Talk Network, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experience with listeners as they discuss with Sunjog All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive, better care for customers, and improve the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with Sunjog All at CIOTalkNetwork.com. You are listening to Inside Transformational Leadership, produced by Georgetown University's Institute for Transformational Leadership. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please send an email to itlprograms at georgetown.edu. Here again is your host, Kate Ebner. This is Cheryl Phillips. I'm back with Bridget Schulte today, and uh, we have been having a fascinating conversation already about her work in uh, The Good Life um, and everything that, that that means, and she's she's been telling sharing with us uh, what they're up to at New America. So um, we were just talking about gender and the, the how this has impacted in the, the workplace and, and how it's seen for both men and women in terms of both division of labor and the kind of work they're uh, doing at work, what happens when you need to take time off to go be with the kids, all of that. And uh, on the break, we were talking about the idea of unconscious bias and what exists there uh, for men and women in the, in the workplace and, and trying to balance kind of work in life. Um, what would you like to share with us uh, about that, Bridget? Oh, you know, it's really, it was, it, it was a really fascinating thing that I came upon when I was reporting my book, and I've got some about it in the book. And then just yesterday, um, we hosted a fantastic event at New America uh, with Iris Bonet, who is, um, uh, she's a behavioral economist at the Harvard Kennedy School, and she's got a new book out called What Works, Gender Equality by Design. It's another book I would highly recommend people who are interested in this to read. Just fascinating. And really, the, what unconscious bias is, and we've known this for some time, that our brains were, um, you know, they evolved to be able to sort things very quickly. Uh, you know, so, you know, when we were out on the savannah, we had to very quickly decide, oh, this is a threat, I have to run, or this is, uh, this is fruit or, uh, you know, berries, and I want to go toward it. You know, so you had to very quickly sort things for your survival. Well, our brains have really not changed that much since Cro-Magnon days, <laughs> uh, that, mm-hmm. which is why, you know, with all the technology, we reach what some people are calling channel capacity. <laughs> um, but on the flip side of it is we haven't really changed that sorting mechanism, which is now in, we don't need to sort quickly, and yet our brain automatically does it, which then has led to stereotyping, which can be very dangerous and um, very harmful. Um, there's a fascinating long-term research project um, called Project Implicit, and researchers, psychologists at Harvard and other places have been, you can actually go online uh, and take these tests, um, and I would encourage everybody to do it. I've done it. It's very revelatory. Um, tests to sort of like measure your own unconscious bias on gender, on race, on a number mm-hmm. of different um, kind of hot-button topics, if you will. And I, and what's probably most, you know, maybe upsetting but not surprising is um, 
for a majority of men and women who have taken these tests, they automatically associate men with career and women with family. And that's sort of what they mean by unconscious bias. So that then if you see a man taking care of a child or saying he needs to leave to go take his mother to the doctor or, uh, you know, if he starts acting in a way that doesn't seem like a breadwinner, then he's acting outside of the expected gender norm. And he can often be punished for that. At the same time, if a woman acts, uh, you know, as a, say, a working mother, one of the reasons why we've had such a difficult time with working mothers is that, that it, you know, it, it violates our gender norm, what we expect, which is the quote unquote good mother is at home with the children all the time. And so, um, these, what we're realizing is that these are sort of biases that are just pre-programmed into our brain. And that's why they call it unconscious bias. And so, you know, we try to have diversity training or leadership training, um, you know, or even unconscious bias training to try to de-bias our minds. And the research is sort of mixed about whether that really works. You know, can you really, quote unquote, change your mind? But what they're discovering is that what you can do is create gender neutral design. You can design to mitigate that unconscious bias. Um, and, and through ways that don't, that are fairly easy and elegant to do. Um, so you know, what, just a yeah, what, really what are brief... a couple, couple of examples of the, so it's, it's designing for gender neutrality, basically? Yeah. So a really, okay, a great example, a very brief example is, um, well, for instance, take the SAT. So everybody knows if you go to college, this is the, the test that you have to take that, uh, you know, will determine sometimes where you go or where you rank. And uh, what for the longest time, you would get a, the, the test would reward you if you got a right point, you know, if you got a, a, an answer right, but it would punish you if you guessed and you were wrong, you know, um, and so you, it wouldn't punish you as much. You, it would take off a quarter point. So what the kind of the, the the researchers discovered is that women tend to be more risk averse than men, and so that women weren't guessing, and that there is sort of a, an algorithm that if you could you, if you could eliminate at least one or two questions and could guess, then you had a better chance of upping your score. And so men tended to guess more, not being quite as risk averse, so their scores tended to be higher. Uh, and so as they were looking at this, they decided, well, what if we just recalibrated it and took away that measurement that really didn't measure intelligence so much as measured your, uh, your, your, your willingness to take a risk, which has been more associated with men. So they've just done that and, uh, they're rolling it out. They rolled it out in March. So, so that's, we don't really quite know the outcome of that, but that's an, that's an example of a gender design where it, it, it becomes a gender neutral thing. And what you're really measuring is not a, a gender difference, like in risk, but, but really what the test was intended to do, which is to measure, um, your, your knowledge, uh, that's and that's measure right. your preparedness for college. So yeah, that's just that's one. There, there are lots of other wonderful examples. The women, um, uh, in the UK, they wanted women on corporate boards and they wanted to have 20 25% by 2015. This is several years ago. Uh, as you know, many European countries are putting in quotas, 
like in Norway, they have a 40% quota, but the UK is more like the US. And, you know, in the US, we tend to be very averse to quotas. We, we don't like mm-hmm. it when people tell us what to do. Uh, we worry that if we have a quota, you're just going to get tokens and you're going to lower quality. That tends to be the, the fear. And so what they did is they, they kind of did it differently. They designed it differently in the UK where they set this goal of 25%. And then what they did is they, it was called a comply or explain. And so every year that you didn't meet that goal, if you didn't comply, you had to explain and you had to be very transparent about it. And really through transparency, being more mindful because you had to explain why, you know, why things were the way they were, they actually got to that 25% goal okay. in a very short period of time. That's so great. that's so what's just exciting. Shifting the mindset or the, the sort of the rationale, the, the mindset piece around it. It's not a quota. It's um, comply or explain. That's, that's yeah. fascinating. So it's, a, it's a design. It's sort of a, you design a system that then uh, takes the unconscious bias out. Yeah. So, uh, so that's very, very exciting. Is there anything else in that domain that you would say to the leaders out there listening to our show in the in the workplace that needs to we need to be paying attention to in terms of the gender um, piece, either male or female? Yes, I would say uh, you know, and and it moves beyond just gender. I think that the leaders, managers in particular, leaders in particular, really need to be asking themselves, really, what is the work of their company or what is the work that they need to be doing? Um, Right now, we are still very much in an industrial kind of model. We judge work by the hours we put in, uh, by the face time we put in at the office. And that's not to say that FaceTime is not valuable. There is a great value in running into people and collaborating. And, uh, you know, there is a great value in that. And yet there's also great value in uh, time uh, for concentrated work, uh, you know, uh, time to operationalize, if you will, whatever ideas have you, you've come up with in your collaboration. There's also great value in time off and away and taking a break and building in uh, the ability to daydream or, you know, that's, that's where kind of fresh ideas come from when you take a walk or, you know, you're not at your desk eating your lunch and you're not sitting there trying to pound out all your emails 18 hours a day. So I guess that would be the biggest thing. And if you really focus on what's effective at your workplace, you will end up solving a lot of those gender problems because one of the, you know, why women, uh, you know, tend not to rise or why they opt. Yeah, I, I don't even want to say opt out because sometimes it's a choice. Sometimes it's a constrained choice. And sometimes women are really pushed out by the system. Um, and I think we need to be, we need to look much more closely at our systems. Uh, we yeah. tend to think that the status quo is just fine. It worked for us. It should work for everyone. And the systems are really quite outdated, um, not just with, with uh, you know, outdated gender roles, but also outdated technology and an outdated idea of, of what is work. Yeah. Um, and so I, the I, more you can make it performance and mission related and not hour and FaceTime related, that would be uh, that would be a really good first step for a lot of businesses. Yeah, it's a great point, and I, I notice in organizations that I work with, um, you know, telework's been around forever, and yet we're still longing for the days when everybody shows up at the meeting in person. And so there's this way of really uh, truly changing how we think about what it means to be 
uh, actively working um, and letting go of some of those old standards as we as we really really embrace the the new and also the millennials and and how they want to be working. So it, it brings me to the topic of um, of productivity, <laughs> and I think it's a uh, it really segues well into that. And I'd be curious. Uh, what you're finding in your research when we're thinking about kind of our always-on culture, uh, what, does, what is that sweet spot of productivity? You know, where, where should we be? How many hours should we be working? And what's the, what's the research that you're looking at telling you around this? Yeah, these are all really, really important questions. And I think that you really can't answer the productivity question until you have a, until you better define what it, what do you mean by work? Um, and I think that sometimes we don't do, and that's harder to do. Um, you know, sometimes I, I, you know, I certainly have gotten into this mode. You can feel like you're busy and productive all day and you've just been running around. And at the end of it, you can point to a long to-do list that you kind of checked off. But what have you really achieved in terms of the kind of the, the core mission? Or, you know, maybe you've just answered emails all day. Um, and, and maybe that is something that was part of what you needed to do, but maybe it was just the ping pong email game. So sometimes uh, we, we confuse stuff and complexity uh, for, for true work. So I think that would be the first thing to really understand whether you're productive or not. You have to understand what do you value and how do you measure it and, you know, kind of where do you want to go. Um, and, and so that takes harder work, but I would encourage everyone to do that. You know, just in terms of, um, you know, how we measure productivity now kind of through GDP, I think one of the astounding things for me when I was reporting the book, I, you know, I, I call myself a recovering workaholic. You know, I'm a recovering ideal worker. You know, I've worked that way for over a quarter century, and the habits are hard to break, and that yeah. mindset is hard to break. You know, and, and everybody tends to, especially if you like what you do, it's hard to to figure out what does done mean, you know, especially if you're in these knowledge economy jobs, you're sort of never done. Um, and yet, if you keep that always on kind of um, practice, uh, you're not really going to be doing your best work, I think. So for me, what was so astounding is to see the charts that looked at, you know, U.S. hours and the hours we work are really high, particularly if you just look at white collar workers. Um, and then for, you know, low wage workers or hourly workers, their hours are going down. And yet when you mix the, you know, when you combine the two, the hours are still going up, uh, which is, which is kind of interesting since you have this, uh, you know, kind of the workforce kind of the experience going in two different directions. So the white color hours are still so high that the average hours come up high. And then when you look at productivity per hour's work to really get a measure of by current standards, well, how productive are each of those long hours? And I think the, my biggest aha moment was when I saw these international charts and we're not number one, <laughs> you know, and the, and the countries that do do really well are places like Norway, um, uh, where they have uh, short hours by law. But, uh, you know, I, I spent some time reporting in Denmark. And some of those shorter hours are very productive, intense hours because they're very mission-focused. And you also don't see people, uh, you know, on Facebook or, you know, talking about the football game at the beginning of the meeting. There's just an awful lot more uh, sense of work is work, and then when it's over, 
that's when that's when life is. So and much more in the focused. U.S., we have a lot of like work friendships and work relationships, and a lot of our identities are very identified with work. Um, but that's not really work. You know, in, the, in one of your, um, I can't remember where I read this, in one of your articles or maybe on the um, on the Better Life Lab website, that one of the researchers even speaks about a productivity cliff, that there's a particular right. point when we, when we start to saturate much over 40 hours where we're literally not, we're, we're going in the opposite direction, essentially, in terms That's of really what we can do. That's really true. Yeah, it was a, a Stanford uh, economist um, uh, I believe his name is uh, Penn Cavill, did this fascinating work. And he did find a productivity cliff. You know, after 40 hours, it starts to go down. And then once you hit 50 and above, it like, it falls off really steep. Uh, very, it's a very steep drop off. So it's, then it's like a productivity cliff, I think. Right. It's pretty amazing, um, so, right? Because we, we're right. turning and turning and turning it. And we all know we've, we literally have no brain capacity left. And yet I'll talk yeah. to my clients and they are back on their email at, you know, put the kids get bed and then back on again. Um, so when we come back from break, I would love to hear, okay, so, you know, I feel like this is what we did last year. We got to this last segment. Okay, so what do we do about it? And to talk a little bit about um, how we bring in more balance and to also, I, I really don't want to leave you today without talking truly about some leisure time and uh, Mm -hmm. to think about how you're thinking about that these days as well. So we're going to head to break and we'll be back in a few minutes with Bridget Schulte. Tune in to the soul of enterprise business in the knowledge economy. With co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Klass, Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Founded in 2012, the Institute for Transformational Leadership, ITL, is an international center for inquiry, experiential education, and research about leadership in the 21st century. Our mission is to develop worldwide communities of transformational leaders and leadership coaches who are dedicated to engaging and providing the leadership needed for a more sustainable and compassionate future. We currently offer two cohort-based certificate programs, the ICF Accredited Certificate in Leadership Coaching and the Executive Certificate in Transformational Leadership. We also offer a range of ICF-certified Advanced Coach Education Master Courses for experienced leadership coaches. For more information about our programs and how to apply, visit scs.georgetown.edu forward slash ITL. Email ITLprograms at georgetown.edu or call 202-687-7000. You are listening to Inside Transformational Leadership, produced by Georgetown University's Institute for Transformational Leadership. 
If you have any questions or comments about our program, please send an email to itlprograms at georgetown.edu. Here again is your host, Kate Ebner. Hi, this is Cheryl Phillips. I'm back with my guest today, Bridget Schulte. As you know, she's the author of Overwhelmed, Work, Love, and Play When No One Has the Time. And she's now at New America, where she directs the Better Life Lab. And we've been having, again, a, a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for being with us today, Bridget. Um, oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for having yeah. me. So we promised ourselves that we were not going to leave today's uh, session, today's interview without really talking about um, leisure and play. And, you know, I'm going to start us off by asking you that we always call it work-life balance. And I say again and again to my clients, let's come up with a different word because that word balance just feels guilt-producing because we realize we're never in it. So first of all, I wonder if you have any better language for us, any other way that you're holding that or thinking about this work in life something, integration, some, whatever it might be? Well, you know, I know there are a lot of different, you know, different words that are being uh, used, work-life balance, work-life fit, flow, integration. I think, all, you know, fluidity, uh, how, however you want to describe mm-hmm. it. You know, I, I think all of those are, are fine. I do feel like if you say work-life balance, people sort of understand what you're talking about, Mm -hmm. and yet there's almost this immediate eye roll, like, yeah, that's never going to happen. So so there's sort of like, you know, we've kind of gotten tired of the way that we're talking about this yearning, but I guess what I would argue is that we need to think even bigger. You know, we need to explode the frame, Um, and that's a lot of what we're trying to do at the Better Life Lab. I I call it galactify, the way we think about it, you know, (laughs) just like, you know, move out to get this much, much bigger perspective. And, you know, even when you're thinking about work life, you're not thinking about whole life. And I think that's what we need to start thinking about is whole lives. And, you know, my sort of North Star, if you will, is the Harvard psychologist, Eric Erickson. Um, I, I love this when he was talking about the good life and how do you define it? And it's, he said, you know, you need to find time for the three great arenas of life. And those three great arenas of life are not just work and not just love, but play, work, love, and play. And that's where the subtitle of my book came from. And that's really what I hold to. Um, you know, even in our lives, you don't want to just have flexible work or, or telecommuting policies just so you can get home and run around your, you know, run around with your kids to uh, little league practice and drive everybody crazy and you're and all stressed out work, and you're all right? overscheduled. It's, it's yeah. more work, right? Uh-huh. So, so, you know, my aim, and I even made this point at a, at a work-life researchers conference, you know, we need to show, you know, that there, you know, the frame needs to be expanded. Our imagination needs to be, um, you know, you know, I guess we've got a failure of imagination so far and like really kind of, um, uh, to kind of spark that in the way we even think about this, that you, uh, you know, that you find, we find meaning and connection in all three of these realms and you need all three of them for a whole life. And uh, I guess I don't have the the neat, um, you know, branding or words for that yet. But I think that's the that's really the the that's really the the drive and the mission for me. It's work, love, and play. You know, work is important, and there's lots of research that shows that we've we've developed our corporations and our business systems 
based on the, the this feeling that people are going to try to be lazy and get away with stuff. So we needed all these rules to keep them in line. And, you know, and yet the research shows that, that people really want to do good work. Uh, the majority of the people, I mean, you'll always have the outliers and the bad apples, but that on the whole, if you can really motivate people through, you know, sense of mastery and purpose and autonomy, you know, you're going to get great work out of people. So meaningful work is important, uh, you know, whether that's a paid or, or not paid job. The work of your life is important. Uh, at the same time, we know from all of the research that human happiness is really based on our connection with other people, that love element in our lives, that even in the worst situations, the, you know, after disasters or, um, you know, in deepest poverty, the people with the most resilience uh, have the have the strongest bonds of connection to others, either family or neighbors or friends. Um, you know that that is what makes us resilient and happy, and yet it's play that makes us human. And I think That's I didn't great. know that. I was, uh, you know, I have to say I totally swallowed the workaholic Kool Aid yeah. and the overscheduled kids Kool Aid. You know, I and that's really where the first chapter of the book came from. You know, I was totally overwhelmed, and um, and it really so it was let's... quite a process, quite a journey to to look at all of the research and really start kind of trying to rethink my own life. And I think what's amazing is it's particularly in the United States, I think it's very important for people to understand that we've never, that we've never really embraced play and leisure in this country as, uh, you know, it, it's actually, it, it's part of a UN declaration as a human right. I, I don't think we see it that way. We tend to think of it as a luxury, um, as, uh, you know, we're being lazy when we should be productive. And particularly for women, and this is not just true in the United States, but women around the world, the research has found that women tend to not feel that they deserve to have time off or time to themselves, that women have long been conditioned to be caregivers of other people and to put others first, and so that taking time for yourself or doing something fun seems selfish, and so there's a, a level of guilt that comes with that. And and I think what was so revelatory to me is that all of that can change. That, that you know that's not written in stone. That's not um, you know we're not biologically wired for that. And in fact, we're biologically wired to play, and that that's where creativity comes from. Uh, the best things you know, some of the things that I've uh, that I've read is you know why do we play? We're one of the only we're the only species that plays not only as juveniles but also as adults because we can imagine. And that's a form of play. Creativity is a form of play. Uh, uh, you, you make things up. You imagine. Well, even asking the question, what if? Um, that, you know, and then you get your mind kind of wandering, and that's play. Uh, and that can lead you to some really wonderful places at, at work and love and play. And more than anything, it it. It, it re-energizes you, uh, and uh, it sort of makes everything that you do um, that much more joyful and better. So when, so when we think about uh, the play part and really finding that leisure time again, and, 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 I, and I like how you spoke about that it's, it's kind of reimagining from a whole life perspective, yeah, and, and maybe that's the language that we start playing around with, but it, as we're as we're reimagining and reengaging with leisure time, what what do you think we should be doing in our family systems? We've been talking about the work system a bit, 
But yeah, how should we, for those of us who have other people in our lives and on the family front, um, what kinds of things could we be doing differently for ourselves and on the family front? You know, it's it's almost the same process. You know, uh, the family system is a system like the work system. And just as at work, the first thing to do is really kind of take that pause to figure out what is the mission of the work, what is most important, and from that, set your priorities. It's the same thing at your family, you know, with your family. Um, you know, what is the most important time that you spend together? What's the most important part? I mean, you know, the mission of your family is to love and support each other. So, um, you know, to take that time to pause and get clear on that and then set your priorities from there. And your priorities are probably, you know, it's not, you know, often we tend to think of life as a to-do list, and that certainly how I how I was when my kids were little, my poor things, uh, you know, <laughs> running them this and that, uh, you know, to be a good mother meant they had to be in all these different activities, and that meant I had to, like, you know, bake these cupcakes, and then I had to do this, and I had to do that. And I, I think that's where that moment of pause becomes really important is because right now we've got all of these external pressures, the sort of the automatic assumptions of our society is that to be a good worker, you need to overwork. To be a good parent, particularly a good mother, you need to overparent and helicopter and, you know, do the homework for them and, and always, you know, and always be there. Uh, and that's really what the research shows that that's not good for anybody, that that's raising stress levels for both us and our kids. And just like we need that space for uh, for play, for reflection, for uh, really for doing nothing, for daydreaming, kids absolutely need that kind of time. You know, and then we're worried. They're like, oh, they're not being productive. They're going to fall behind. You know, the, the best research, uh, you know, uh, the, the whole idea of achievement, the best research shows that when you parent for achievement first, you know, you may get achievement, but you're not going to get happiness. But if you parent for happiness first, and that does not mean, you know, letting them do whatever they want that will, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, sit on the couch and play video games all the time. But true happiness just means, you know, feeling right in your own skin, that you are on the path to becoming uh, the, you know, the, the most fully realized who person that you can be, you know, when, you know, when you parent for bringing out the, you know, the, the, the authentic person in your child, uh, and you parent for that happiness first, you actually do get achievement, um, you know, almost by happenstance. (laughs) So I think those are really important things as we try to, uh, think about our family systems. And I think one of the most important things, particularly for heterosexual couples is, you know, look at the way you divide the labor. Um, do you ever talk about it? Is it just something you assume? Uh, so many of us, and my husband and I were the very same way. Once we had kids, all of a sudden I took over all of the family duties, even though we'd shared them pretty well before. And a lot of that was because of those, again, unconscious biases, you know, the unconscious uh, external pressures thinking, mm-hmm. you know, he's the father, so he's now got to go and earn more at work, and I'm the mother, so I need to be more present here, and if I work, well, then I should feel really guilty. You know, we are in a new era. It's time for families to kind of take that breath, figure out what works best for them, what are their priorities, how do you, you know, what is the kind of the work of the family and how do you divide it fairly? Yeah. You know, it doesn't have to be 50-50, but how do, you know, when does it get to the point where it feels fair and have those conversations? Um, really great. reimagine your own family. 
uh, I love you know, kind of set your, set your own priorities, set your own boundaries. And I love that idea of happiness uh, first versus achievement for our children. It's almost an old school, right? <laughs> because I think both of us <laughs> right. were parented around just go out and play, yeah? And if we yeah. take that and think about it for ourselves as well as ad- adults, what if we focus happiness first, achievement will come, flow out of that. So we are amazingly starting to come toward the end of our time together. And I'm, I'm really curious, uh, Bridget, how, what you think, if we were talking, if we're talking again 10 years from now, if you really think about 10 years forward, where do you think we're going to be on some of these issues in another Let's decade? See. All right. So 10 years from now, I just got my passport renewed. So my pa- <laughs> I don't need to be renewing my passport again in 2026. <laughs> Um, you know, honestly, in 10 years, I really do see, I, I've, I'm very hopeful. I see a lot of optimistic signs that I had not seen uh, really when I was starting to first write my book. So I, I think with millennials and uh, just really thinking about work and life in a different way and, and sort of just in a non-controversial, no big deal way, it's like, of course, I'm going to have meaningful work and of course, I'm going to have a full life and of course, I can do it. Um, you know, they feel and think the way we all have wanted to feel and think but didn't feel like we could. And, you know, I say God bless them if they feel entitled because uh, they're really leading the change that could, that could end up helping all of us. Um, uh, so I do I agree. feel I really like in, agree with that. Yes. Yeah, I, I do feel like in ten years, work is going to hopefully be a whole lot more about um, you know the mission and the performance rather than the hours and the face time. I really do feel like we're we're beginning to understand that people have whole lives and that men and women work and have caregiving responsibilities. That men and women can have lives in the public sphere and the private sphere. Uh, that we're moving toward a more egalitarian world, at least in in many parts of the West. Uh, um, so I do see great, uh, you know, great movement and great hope. And I think that uh, you know, as opportunities continue to open for both men and women, um, you know, and as we move toward a more egalitarian future, um, uh, you know, the sky's the limit. How exciting! Who knows? Who knows what kind of cool things will happen? And you know, um, you know, the kinds of and I do feel like hopefully we're moving away from kind of like the toxic stress on our kids. So I'm hoping that, you know, childhood can, can come back too. <laughs> it's, it's wonderful, wonderful thoughts. And I, uh, I think the work that you're doing at New America and you and your group, uh, the Good Life and Better Life Lab, uh, this will help lead the way, like just culminating that research in one place and sponsoring uh, people we can listen to and follow and, and learn about this. I, I, I find personally that there's a real hunger for it. So thank you once again for taking the time with us. And I hope to have you uh, back yet again. Maybe we'll just make this an annual visit so that we can <laughs> that see what you're up to. Yeah. It's, it's amazing what you've, um, what more you've done in this, um, in this year to, to really lead us on this path. So thank you again, Bridget, and we will uh, talk again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us this week on Inside Transformational Leadership. Please tune in for another edition with your host, Kate Ebner, next Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 
For more information about our programs, please visit scs.georgetown.edu forward slash ITL. We'll talk again next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.